0: Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light Light Light. Podcast.
1: The sound you can hear in the background is an audio recording of an expanded cinema piece from Los Angeles-based artist Madison Brookshire. The work is called Fountain, described by the artist as a performance for projector, harmonium and tone tuned to one another. The performance is from this year's Alchemy Film and Moving Image Festival in Scotland. Madison Brookshire is an artist and filmmaker whose work crosses experimental film, music, painting and performance. As well as performing at Alchemy, Madison also talked at the Filmmaker Symposium on the theme of time and the untimely. In his introduction, he writes, I believe that a philosophy of time is necessary for political action and therefore that studying it is necessarily a political act. In my work, I study how combinations of images, sounds and silences can produce lived experiences of time. More on that later. We sat down to record this interview on the final day of the film festival. And my first question was, how did he come to appreciate film and the moving image as we appreciate it? I um,
0: was uh, interested in folk music and um, purchased a, the Anthology of American Folk Music by Harry Smith and really only knew of him through that body of work and then in the essays around the reissue like the Smithsonian had put this out um, and in the essays it mentioned that he made hand-painted films and I just thought well, what is a hand-painted film? I had just had no... I didn't know that he was a filmmaker and I didn't know what a hand-painted film was and then uh, I went to school, to, you know, university and I had just just begun to become interested in art. Um, it really wasn't a big part of my growing up or anything at all. And uh, I had like seen a PBS special um, about the history of American art. Um, it was all very kind of pedestrian stuff, you know, and then uh, I had basically seen the work of Robert Rauschenberg and I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, so I went to school with the idea that I, I was a little bit interested in art, so I took some art history classes, And then I took a film history class, but it was experimental film history. Um, And really my brother had recommended the teacher. And so, and then I walked in and the first day he said, um, the first thing we looked at, he said, you know, we're gonna see this hand-painted film. And it was Chartres series by Stan Brakhage. Now I've never seen a hand-painted film before. And now I'm seeing one that's like 20 minutes long and really quite intense. And I had no idea what was going on, but I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. (laughs) And uh, it was really by the end of that quarter, and that was, uh, it was Mark McElhatton was the teacher, and he's a, uh, he's a curator, a programmer. And like, the class really was almost like an extended uh, program, in addition to film history. And it was about halfway through, I just had the most overwhelming feeling that I really couldn't live without these films. And I knew that if I didn't actively involve myself in them, I'd never seen them again. Um, cause this is 1999, 1998, something like that. So there wasn't, you know, if you didn't search it out, there was no way to find it. And that was it. So I went to Mark and I said, I'm thinking of becoming a filmmaker. What do you recommend? And
1: he said, do this, that and the other. And I've done those things and here I am. (laughs) Uh Excellent. Um, Some people wait years before they have the opportunity to to see a, a, a brackage work being projected, let alone have the opportunity to collectively learn from it, so it was was that a game changer for you to experience that so early on? Yes, and I don't know what the
0: print sources were, but we watched so much film and so much of it on film. Um, he really had quite the collection. He was living in New York, or lives in New York, and um, there, are, there were at the time, or maybe there still are, but um, public film collections, and so I think you could check things out of the library and bring them up. And then Binghamton University has a fairly good film collection as well.
1: Um, but no, it was yeah, it was uh it was transformative. I don't know how else to yeah. <laughs> so on your work you use a wide range of media to engage viewers in deep experiences of time and you talked a lot about this at the symposium. And I have been grappling with these concepts um since you talked about it on Thursday and, and seeing your performance over the weekend which we'll get to later help me kind of get some clarity on it but um, un- unpack that that idea and that concept for me a little
0: Yeah, um, so I guess one thing to say is um, I think there are different kinds of time and I think that different uh, forms of cinema actually engage different kinds of time I like to think about what I can do as an artist to help us re-engage with lived time or a lived experience of time as opposed to uh, a more mechanized version of time which is really um, well it's not for us it's sort of um, for machines sort of a product of the industrial era that we would uh, you know uh, wear watches and divide things into minutes and seconds and Mm -hmm. um, you know sort of um, time is not actually discrete until you make it so Mm uh, I think I heard Fred Warden say once that uh, time is a thing that only exists when we measure it, which I really love as an idea, but I actually think I've come to believe the opposite, um, that measuring it actually changes it mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent. So yeah, so the work is about getting past some kind of cliched version of time or a representation of time, and then hopefully back to, like I said, a lived experience of time. And then that can be uncomfortable, that can be, I mean, boring, quite frankly. Um, but uh, Boredom is good, as my teacher Ken Jacobs used to say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was interested in your work, about 11 minutes, and um, I I read your your paper on your description. I'm just going to read from the introduction because I was quite interested in what you were saying. In writing this note, I have struggled to find a balance between, on the one hand, an openness and transparency that will allow someone not already predisposed to like this sort of thing, enough information to be able to access the work. So that's me. And and then on the other hand, uh, a starker, shorter description, more in keeping with the aesthetic of the film itself. So can you maybe talk a little bit about that project, um, about 11 Minutes and that sort of an, an internal uh, debate within your own mind as to how to present the work and how to make it accessible for people? Yeah yeah um, okay
0: so this is a film uh, this is it comes after the color series and it's sort of a um, it's like a reduction of the color series all into one and shorter film but so the so so to explain it I might have to explain the color series as well mm-hmm. uh, so the color series is a, a longish film or uh, six individual films that all together make one feature 74 minutes long and it's just the timing lights of the printing process of the lab producing um, flat fields of color on the film itself and they change slowly over time and each of the film goes through all three timing lights in a uh, you know in a in a kind of composition so you begin to understand time by understanding these changes in color and then about 11 minutes is sort of like a it was almost like a an experiment or a, a limit case as i call it of that idea If you could understand time just by watching colors change, could you also understand time by not watching colors change? So about 11 minutes is made in the same way as the color series, but all the timing lights are set to 25, which is halfway through their register. Um, So red, green, and blue are 25, 25, 25. It was a little bit of a Baroque process uh, once I knew what the color was going to be by determining what the lights were going to do the question was how long should it be Mm -hmm. because this is not like uh shooting in 60 millimeter where you've got the built-in parameters of the 100 foot camera roll or whatever Mm -hmm. um uh you can really it's it's almost infinite what you can do because you're just using the print stock at the lab um, which is you know quite yeah quite quite a lot of footage that you can work with so eventually, I decided to multiply the numbers twenty five twenty five and twenty five together um, and i think you i think it's sixteen thousand uh, two hundred twenty five something like that a big number mm-hmm. um, and I decided to take that number as the number of frames in the film, and then that number of frames works out to a certain you know amount of footage and then that turns out to be about eleven minutes or ten minutes and fifty one seconds and then that just so happens to be very close to um, what a thousand foot roll of film would have been. Mm-hmm. So I really loved this kind of baroque process of getting back to what's really a very simple solution, which mm-hmm. is just to make it a thousand feet. <laughs> so uh, uh, okay, so then it's just this kind of um, translucent gray color. It doesn't look like clear leader. It does have a, a tone to it. Uh, but it's, it's also um, it's not a very dark gray. It's quite luminous mm-hmm. uh, and this is also this This film was inspired by Agnes Martin and her paintings to a certain extent so um, and I basically wanted to see if you just sit with this color um, does it change over time and then therefore do you still have an experience of time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the answer was yes essentially uh, anytime you stare at a flat field of color for over a certain amount of time I think that's something to do with your Is it the cones that perceive color uh, in the retina? They fatigue, and basically they shut off. Uh And you begin to perceive the opposite. And that's why we get after image. Um, So essentially, you're seeing the after image and the image at the same time, because of course, they don't all fatigue at the same rate. Mm -hmm. So you just begin to see a very slight kind of uh, uh, dance of these ephemeral um, phenomena. And uh, I find it very uh, quiet and beautiful
1: as long as I'm not seeing it with other people, and then I'm just a nervous wreck. (laughs) (laughs) And I I am interested in what you hope um, people will experience when they see this work, because in in a way it is also a gift of time that you're you're given. So what what do you hope people will will, will, will draw from that time with your work?
0: Yeah, that's a really lovely way of putting it, a gift of time. Um, I do One of my intentions is for the work to be generous. Even though it can be quite austere, um, I'm never trying to create a kind of shock or provocation. I really do want to um, extend. It's almost like an invitation to an experience. Um, So I really love what you said, a gift of time. Um, You know, the feedback that I've heard is that people do have that experience. So at first you kind of confront the film, which is, okay, nothing's going to happen and then you sort of settle into that experience and then you uh, maybe have this other experience so it gives you time as you said so I have a friend who practices mindfulness meditation but is not a big experimental film enthusiast and basically had the understanding during the movie like oh this is actually quite related to my mindfulness practice and I'll just watch it in that way Um, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily my intention but it is basically the way that I sit with the film as well Um, the other thing that I could say is that, in addition to that openness and generosity, the starkness is a kind of uh, resistant surface, so that it's not very yielding, um, which isn't to say that you have to go all the way to it, but it certainly doesn't just open itself up and come to you. It's not consumable in that way. And I like the, I think of this as almost establishing a, a kind of block in the flow of time. Um, or like for a different metaphor, if you're watching a stream run and you place a stone in the middle and you kind of see how the stream has to run around it, sometimes I think of the art object as a, a block that we place in the flow of experience and then you can sort of start to understand how your experience is flowing around it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: It's something hard to push off of. You actually meet a little resistance
1: and then you start to come to understand something of your own experience. You're also a uh a musician and sound plays an important part in, in what you do. So how, how does the sound that, that does or doesn't go along with the film um, contribute towards that viewer's experience? Yeah, in fact I call it a musical which is a little bit
0: uh, uh, perverse or maybe <laughs> or ironic anyway. Um, because the, the, so the colour of the film extends to the soundtrack area of the film and then can be interpreted as an optical mm-hmm. soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Which, in this case, because it's a very light color, it really comes across as a very kind of um, soft white noise, or I guess they call that pink noise, in the, uh, you know, a kind of filtered white noise. And then um, as the print ages or anything, it gathers a little more dust, and that becomes part of it as well. So um, it was very important to me that the sound be there. It was not a decision taken lightly and it was very important to me that it specifically be the sound of the color which was something we had to kind of work out at the lab because you know for them it's kind of like well you just want noise then that's easy it's like no no no, it really needs to be (laughs) (laughs) you know Um, the sound in that film it changes the way the film sits in the room and then I think uh, without overstating it that's something that I'm also looking for in my cinema is some kind of understanding of how the cinema is a space, and specifically a shared space. And this seems to me to be one of the things that distinguishes cinema from other forms of moving image, uh, either artwork or just even other distribution platforms. Mm -hmm. Um, So specifically the thing that we all did all week here together, uh, which is, you know, come together as bodies in a room and share time and space, Every film has that as a part
1: of it, and then some films make you aware of it, um, and I hope to make the latter kind of. Mm-hmm. I'm increasingly interested in optical sounds from, from film, and I, I could listen to it in its various forms all day long. I, I do find it massively comforting. and Some of the, the visiting artists over the Alchemy Festival this week, like yourself, they, they, that, that, will, that will change over time. As the materiality deteriorates in the film, or, or, or dust gathers, do you find that you have got an ear for that that optical sound in, in, in a space like we've been in for most of this week in the dark?
0: Yeah, I do quite like it, and I actually just recently had a um, a sort of revisiting experience that reminded me. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Hollis Frampton's uh, film Zorn's Lemma from I think it's 1971 or 72, maybe. Um, but it's uh, it's a long film. I don't recall exactly how long, but 40 to 60 minutes or something like that. And um, it is actually a sound film, but I had remembered it as a silent film. But it's in three sections, and the first and third section are just quite short, but they both have sound. And then the long middle section just has the blank track. So mm-hmm. it's not silent, It's but it is a very quiet sound. And I just... Uh, well, again, as Ken Jacobs used to say, it just it fills the mind. I mean, it's really quite wonderful. Um, so I I had sort of forgotten. I must have had that experience in you know in the back of my mind for a long time, but I've always I've always quite liked it. And then I also but I also try not to be um, how to say uh, precious or fetishistic about it. If it's going to be a part of the work, it needs to uh, come from a place of necessity. Mm-hmm. I don't quite know how to define that further at the moment, but the idea of necessity is very important to me. That there really shouldn't be any embellishments, um, but that you're sort of at the service of the thing, and then just trying to find the the most um, logical or or um, elegant way to present it, uh, whatever the thing is.
1: It- Podcast. Fountain, um, your expanded cinema piece that you performed at Alchemy this year, so a performance for Harmonium and a projector tuned to one another and that performance really did engage us collectively I think on, on the night with that experience of time. So what was the starting point for, for, for this work and, and how did it develop from there
0: Yeah so th- so uh, this piece I think came, a- came about around the same time that I was working on um, about 11 minutes and, uh, and then the um, guitar piece that I played a little excerpt from um, a guitar with the lowest string removed. Uh, tuned open and strum fast until it ends, or with as little little variation as possible until it ends. There was an interest in what kind of time do we experience or what will I learn about time if I go into something that's not even um, very slow but almost unchanging. And I say almost unchanging because of course what you learn is that everything changes. Um, So you're able to access different types of experience when you slow things down so much that they're very nearly static Mm -hmm. Um, and then I knew this thing about the pageant projector that when you uh, switch it from sound to silent speed it it makes this very beautiful flicker Um, and I had always wanted to do something with that but never knew you know what to do and it sort of exists on its own it doesn't really need anything else of course and then I was borrowing a harmonium from a friend at the time, uh, a, a composer I know and work with, um, Tashi Wada. And so it was just kind of about the studio. And I was just sort of playing, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, really just playing. But I really spent a long time in the studio in that flicker. Um, I mean, really as a form of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, just kind of what happens when I just um, sit here and do this. and. Honestly, the piece started out much more full. I would sing, or I would play more notes, or kind of, you know, more, more improv- improvisational, um, more instruments even, and it just became a process of, uh, well, that's too much, and that's too much, and that's too much. And then finally, when I arrived at this, it, it felt like, um, it felt right. Mm-hmm and I don't know why exactly and I was very very nervous I, I felt, I mean I really as I said I spent a lot of time in it mm-hmm. um, and I really felt like it was uh, quite beautiful but I was also equally nervous about showing it to other people because of course it's literally nothing you know, there's there's no film in the projector and we're looking at a um, a blank we're looking at a, at a blank <laughs> um So I think what I realized was happening, so first I noticed something and then I had to sort of check that it was true. Mm -hmm. Um, So the projector made a tone and in uh, in the beginning I was doing it with a guitar. Um, It's a little easier to travel with a sine tone than it is a guitar, so. Uh, I noticed that the guitar, uh, if it were tuned in the right way, it started to interact with the sound that the projector was making. Um, Because, of course, the projector makes a lovely sound, but that also produces a frequency, and then that frequency has overtones. And so, basically, I think I had very accidentally stumbled onto the idea that you could tune the guitar to the overtones that the projector was making. Mm -hmm. And then the harmonium started to interact with that. And then the strangest thing happened, which Mm -hmm. was, it seemed to me, even though I was only playing one chord on the harmonium, its tuning changes very slightly depending on how much air you sort of push through it. You can sort of detune it a little. And then when that would happen, the beating uh, of the frequencies would change between the guitar and the projector, and then the way that the flicker appeared would change as well. And it was like, uh, I, I still don't know any reason why that should be perceptually, but it's um, It continues to happen to me, and apparently happens
1: for other people, so I've begun to believe that it's true. (laughs) (laughs) It it was a a very satisfying space to to, to be in for the duration of the performance, and it's interesting what you said about the way that you squeezed the air in the bellows through the reeds of the harmonium, because it felt a very... Analog and, and also or organic experience as well because it is light being projected against the wall it's air being pushed through reeds of a harmonium and I think that that does contribute towards the the, the viewers experience as well does that make sense? Absolutely and I actually think this was another
0: kind of slow learning curve for me um, So with a piece like that that's so simple you're really just trying to find out what are the parameters of the piece Sort of the what is it takes a long time to actually arrive at. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I discovered early on was that it didn't work as well if I amplified the harmonium. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that then imposes a limitation. If the harmonium is going to be acoustic, it's not really that loud. So, for instance, it wouldn't have worked in the um, wonderful Heart of Hoyt, uh cinema space mm-hmm. um, because it's just too good a room (laughs) it's Mm -hmm. too big and Mm -hmm. it's got nice sound deadening and all that stuff so then it sort of imposed this other condition on it which was it really has to be in a relatively small space uh, because you're only going to use the mute the sound that the instrument itself can produce and the reason i think that that became important again it was not fetishistic or anything it was that when i was amplifying it the experience that you described wasn't there Mm -hmm. so the connectedness that we had I mean, there was also a little bit of a sonic thing, that the sounds separate more if one is electronic and one is acoustic. And that separation is also important, I think. Mm-hmm. But there was the, the result of that was more the emotional effect on me and the other people who were experiencing it. And I felt that there was a closeness between us that was simply lacking when I tried amplifying the harmonium.
1: You've been um, with with us at Alchemy for the duration of the festival. Um, this might not be an easy question to answer immediately, but what, what have been some of your your highlights? For you? what what are you gonna what works maybe kind of stayed with you that you'll, you'll you'll take away with you?
0: Well, I would say uh, rather than individual works, I would say it's the, it's the experience of the festival itself and how integrated it is uh, with the city and with the community. And then um, what a difference that makes in terms of how you arrive as an outsider so it's one of the things that I actually quite like about music sort of as opposed to cinema is that there's a communal aspect to music that seems always present I think just the way that people have to support one another in order to make their pieces come about, they're always attending each other's rehearsals and helping out with all Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then um, sometimes film can be more competitive than that or at least more individualistic um, if not more hierarchical Uh, which is sort of ironic because music might actually have more hierarchies within it mm-hmm. composers and performers and all this kind of stuff but um, here because the festival has emerged again from necessity uh, as, as I understand it from the necessity that Richard was describing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the need was for a community and then the community was created and so then you're arriving into a community and it's really um, it's just a very warm Experience, so it's it's the it's the way that you uh, bond with people over the duration of the festival. It's the fact that in the Q and A's the uh, uh, moderator can refer to everyone by name. I mean that's really quite rare. <laughs> And um, and so you have this wonderful closeness that you you know you develop an affection for people and then their work, um, or the other way round, you see something that really moves you and then you meet the person.
1: And I did want to ask you that as well. And how how does attending festivals like this inform your work or what you might go on to do next once you get home?
0: Well, I must say it was it was just such a uh, how can I how can I say um, I was very moved and a little surprised at how much people like the piece. Because I do think of it as a little bit difficult. Um, and uh, no one left, which I thought was like, really remarkable. And maybe, maybe that's just kind of politeness, you know, c- because of the way that we're all so close together. But I think, I mean, it's kind of a hard thing. I think if you were just being polite, you know, maybe 20 minutes in, you'd, you'd duck out anyway, right? <laughs> it's like, good enough. Uh, so I take away a sense of um, encouragement in, the, in just the best and warmest possible way. Into the Moth Light Into the Moth Light Podcast
1: I was quite interested in your expanded cinema and in particular these words that you talked about in the symposium and I guess that's a piece of expanded cinema that is timeless and... To a degree, permanent, and I was interested in in, and how we impose our own thoughts around that work. So, do you want to talk talk a little bit about um, these words and some of your thought processes that that informed that?
0: Yeah, I just had the. This is so silly, and please forgive me, but I just had the funniest idea. I'll make you a a gift of a piece, if you don't mind. Perfect, lovely. Uh Uh, And I'm just taking out a piece of um, graph paper and I'll just write, uh, so it just says these words and some of the sounds about them, <laughs> so that's for you. Perfect,
1: <laughs> thank you so much, yeah. thank you.
0: So these words really came from, I, I had sort of a, a, a worse idea, like, a, like a, I was working on an idea that didn't work, which was I wanted to make, um, I guess a self-referential composition, but that wasn't the intention, but that was the thing that wasn't working, that was the problem was that it was too self-referential. So I was making a video of me typing on my typewriter, and I think that it was something like these words and the sounds of the machine that made them. Of course, the typewriter, uh, funny thing, it's a Hermes 3000, it's made by Pyard, which is the same company that makes my Bolex. Um, it's a beautiful machine, and it makes beautiful noises, and I sort of wanted to make a piece with that. But it was too closed. It was like a closed circuit, and it just, there was no space there, it didn't mm-hmm. do anything. Um, and then I started... Yeah, just trying to turn it into other things, essentially. Uh, so, uh, And I had had this desire to make a composition that would perform itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would perform itself, in this case, in the act of being written, and then also in the act of being uh, read. So the performance was sort of um, uh, uh, both uh, continuous and then always quite momentary and immediate. Um, and then at the same time, I was working on these, uh, uh, trying to figure out how to make sort of uh, very long duration uh, films, again, kind of after Tony Conrad's Yellow Movies. And I was doing things like making empty 4x3 frames and putting them on the wall, um, which is a practice I've continued. But I, I then had this desire, or it became, it became clear that actually the way to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish was to do both at the same time. So the composition that would perform itself would also be the sort of long duration expanded cinema. And so then it was just um, essentially working with the language as material until it um, performed itself. Uh, And that was just a very immediate and sort of um, trial by error. But the first one that I arrived at that worked was these words and the sounds that surround them. And then suddenly upon writing it and reading it, I was listening in a new way. Um, and then it was it was all just kind of obvious from there. Uh, and I realized that you could break down the elements of cinema into something very simple, which is, of course, just light, sound, and time. Um, so if they're displayed and they're being read, the film is on. And then this way, it was like really expanded cinema. Because it's, you know, all, all the light around these words, I think, is one of the, you know, you know, these words and all the light around them or something like that, which is a lot. But it was also very thin. So it was, it was a film that was very large and also, like, barely there. I wanted to make something, um, you know, I didn't want it to be, like, uh, masculine or macho. I wanted it to be, um,
1: well, generous, I guess, as I was saying before. Well, it's it's been a pleasure to be part of this performance Um, right now as as we look at the piece and when you head home to the States um, this will be um, framed in my studio space and it will continue its life there Um, Madison, thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure to talk to you Thank you Jason,
0: it's been a real pleasure to talk to you too and to get to know some of your work
1: And we'll share links and images on our website at intothemothlight.com We'll finish this episode with the final moments of Madison's performance of Fountain, recorded here in Scotland earlier this year. Until next time, goodbye. into the moth